Yesterday, um, I went to uh, pick up Azalea. Uh, she had been on a field trip with one of her teachers to go to the ballet, um, and they were supposed to be back at the school at between 5.30 and 6. And um, the two little ones decided they wanted to go with me. We had them for the night. And I said, okay. So we threw the little booster seats in the back of my car, and they were both asleep before we got a quarter of the way there. And um, then the, the, the van coming back was a little delayed, so they got out, and they're playing on the playground and stuff. And uh, it came time to get back in, the van, or in, in our car, and I told Azalea, I said, buckle your sister in, because in my car it's a little difficult. It's with the car seats, and it it's, doesn't work real easy. You've got to kind of shift things around. So I, I go to buckle Christopher in, and Azalea's on the other side. She's going to buckle Pearl in. Well, Pearl's going to be the big girl, and she doesn't need somebody else to buckle her in. She's going to do it herself. I didn't pick up on this. So I am completely bent over like this, trying to get the seatbelt in for Christopher, and Pearl grabs her seatbelt and does an absolute full-thrust roundhouse with that seatbelt, brings it over, and clocks me right in the top of the head with the steel buckle on that belt. And I'm just going, ah! <laughs> I mean, right on the flat edge, just as hard as she could whip that thing around. And uh, I was good. But it hurt a lot. And she is not allowed to buckle herself anymore. Today we're approaching the time of year when we choose to celebrate one of the most amazing events in the history of mankind, God being born as a man, joining us in our humanity so that the other two most amazing events, the crucifixion and the resurrection, could take place. Before we get to that, however, it's a great idea to take notice of something. For virtually all of mankind's existence, God had been setting things in place for this to happen. Jesus' coming was not, oh, things didn't work out, let's come up with a backup plan. God knew humanity would sin before he created us. This was always the plan, and Jesus' coming has been the plan and had things happening behind the scenes, put in place by God since the fall. In the meantime, people were just going about their business, living out their lives generation after generation. God was purposely operating largely behind the scenes to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Thousands of generations came and went in the interim. People who were born lived good or bad lives according to the knowledge that God afforded them, growing old and passing away, only knowing what little they did. Sometimes I have to wonder about the thoughts of people in this interim period going on, such as the descendants of Abraham, who were born into slavery. 
They're in Egypt. Their parents had been slaves. Their grandparents had been slaves. Their great-grandparents had been slaves. And they didn't live to see the day when Moses would be raised up to lead them out of that. I wonder what their thoughts were about the world and what God had in mind for their children and grandchildren as everything seemed to go on the way that it always had. I point out in Sunday school class today, we're going to talk about uh, this event, but um, I, 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 I said to them, uh, not, none of them really knew this, that there's 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, and that the, the first time that prophecy was delivered by an angel to a person and passed on to mankind The way that it was delivered was rather unique in all of Scripture that we know of. It was delivered by chalkboard. That's uh, Zechariah when he told about John when he couldn't talk. There was 400 years between the Old Testament and the New where God had not spoken to his people. They only had the limited knowledge of God those people all the way back that were passed down from the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How God had promised their people a great nation, but the people in those slavery ways, the the people in the meantime, they didn't see any of that. They weren't seeing it happen, yet they remained faithful to worshiping God with what they knew. Or some of them didn't remain faithful to God. As time went on, God developed the plan further. Not that he was like making the plan up as he went. I'm saying he was working it more and more as the time approached to bring about his solution for the problems that we brought upon ourselves in our rebellion against God. From the giving of the law through Moses to the establishment of the new nation of Israel in the promised land through Joshua to the warnings and refining of that nation through the prophets and through the exile. Eventually, just immediately before the arrival of the promised deliverer, came another prophet, actually a handful of prophets, but we're going to concentrate on the very first one today, the first prophet of the New Testament. We'll talk about him today and another one as we see God paving the way for the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. God was putting things in place to smooth the road so to speak for the arrival of his son as a flesh and blood human baby. But as usual, we have to go back a couple of steps in order to comprehend that event that we celebrate as Christmas. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, if you would. Starting in verse 5. We're going to go all the way through 25, but we're going to take it in chunks this morning. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he and his wife, oh, he had a wife 
from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, when I read that, it doesn't specifically say how old. There were a lot of times in the Old Testament would say exactly how old people were. This it doesn't say. It just says they were advanced in years. I wonder what that means in first century Palestine to be advanced in years. I mean, are we talking like 39? I don't know. It just means that they were older than most people were when they were parents. Let's pause for a moment and take notice of this very familiar motif that's recognizable by anybody who reads the Bible. We have a good, God-fearing man and woman who are, like Abraham and Sarah, without child in their old age, whatever that was for them. But there have been several occasions in Scripture where elderly, childless people were blessed by God with a child when they expected none. Sometimes miraculously, like Abraham and Sarah, or the Shunammite couple in 2 Kings chapter 4. But sometimes, through non-miraculous means, but ones which God brings about, such as Ruth having a child and then laying that child in the lap of Naomi as a grandson for her to raise as a child in her old age after her own husband and her own sons had been killed. Going on in the passage, it says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. We need to take a moment and explain exactly what's going on here. Zechariah is a priest. And so he does priestly duties. But by this time in history, there were an awful lot of priests. There were more priests than there was priestly duties for them to do. So it had gotten to be an extremely part-time job. They were divided into 24 divisions. And they only did their duties for two weeks a year, kind of like the National Guard. It's like you're doing something else the rest of the year, and then you come and spend two weeks doing this duty. The rest of the time... They would have been farmers or other professions in their own towns, but also serving as religious leaders in that role for the people among whom they lived. Here he's on his two-week duty, and by casting lots, they would choose who would go in that day to offer incense on the altar. This is not the altar where the animal sacrifices were made. That was outside of the actual temple in the courtyard, and it was much bigger. Neither was this in the Holy of Holies. It was a special altar on which incense was burned 
morning and evening, every single day, offered by a priest. It was about three feet high, about 18 inches square on top, with horns on all four corners. Here's a picture. This would have stood just outside the curtain of the Holy of Holies, separating the holy place from where only priests could go, from the most holy holy place where only the high priest could go, and there only once a year. They would go in there every single day and offer incense. What was important to note for this situation is that the burning of the incense was meant to represent the prayers of God's people going up to him. Crowds would gather just outside every single day, every morning and every evening to pray to God while the incense was being offered and burned. Going on in the scripture there, it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I bet he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now this is a a little bit of a difficult passage, just uh, language-wise, because the tense of the verb, verb prayer is singular. It's a a word that is used meaning a prayer, singular, that was offered once. It would almost certainly mean the single prayer which he had just made as he burned the incense. Not an ongoing prayer, something that's, that's being offered time and time again. Perhaps, maybe, I don't know, Perhaps he'd given up on a child. Just kind of accepted the fact that he was never going to be a father, laid that, des- that, 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 that desire to the side, and just decided, I'm going to live my life with my wife, and that is all there will be to it. And yet maybe, just this day, after a long time of, of just living his life Just this one time he said to the Lord again, God, I'd like a child. Brought back up, perhaps spurred on by the Holy Spirit. Or another possibility is that he, as with the majority of those outside, had been praying for what we're told later on they were all desiring at this time in the world, the coming of the promised Messiah to deliver them from their oppression. The fun thing about this is that what happens here is an answer to both of those things. Both prayers, it doesn't matter which it was that was offered, they're both answered. John will be the child that Zechariah and Elizabeth have prayed for, but he will also be the forerunner the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah 
whom the whole community had been praying for for a long time. Going on in the scripture there. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. You know, he first started saying, don't be afraid. At this part, I think he might have been thinking, you better be a little bit afraid. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when the Lord, when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah is told of the coming of his son John, a blessed event just in that. If that's all he had been told, he would have been having a great day. I mean, just to have an angel come and say, you know what, you've been wanting a child all these years, you're going to get one. That alone would have been magnificent. But he also tells him that he's going to be the one who was spoken of by the prophets, both Isaiah and Malachi. There are a few special things about the, the coming of John which are absolutely unique in Scripture. We never see them anywhere else. One is that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. No one else is referred to in this way. And from the instructions given about how he is to be raised... Some have thought that perhaps he was to be a Nazarite, like Samson. You know, uh, all, it's a different group of people that, are, that make vows and are set aside for the Lord. But that's not said. It doesn't say anything about him being a Nazarite. And there's no mention of anything about his hair, which was very specific for the Nazarites, never cutting their hair. No, John was to be neither priest nor Nazarite. 
He was not to follow in the line of his father and his grandfathers and being a priest. Nor was he going to be set apart in that, in that role as a Nazarite like Samson was. He was to be something never seen before and never seen again. Unique in all of history. Which brings us to the main aspect of his divine purpose and calling. To be the one who makes the way ready. The one who prepares the people for the coming of the Lord. It says that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This would seem to indicate that a great many of them had turned away from the Lord their God. That they weren't really living that great of lives, that they weren't really following God. Indeed, we see throughout the Gospels that although Israel is in general a God-fearing people and a God-worshipping nation, there's something rotten in Denmark, or rather Jerusalem. There are cheats, thieves, liars, prostitutes, and that's just in the Sanhedrin. The leadership, both political and religious, are overwhelmingly corrupt. They're in it for the power, and they're in it for the money. But it just isn't them. The people have become rather bad also. But under this, this veil of religiousness, they're still the children of God. They still go to the temple. They still go and observe the Sabbath. But they're not quite doing it right. John is there to bring them back from that. His main purpose was to get people thinking and feeling about what is truly right and moral and godlike and what is truly wrong and evil not just living a life of sin so long as you follow all the right rituals so long as you walk the right path and and do the right steps and go to the temple when you're supposed to and make the right offerings when you're supposed to so long as you do this you can get away with doing all that other stuff at least in their minds. He was there to have their hearts and their minds focused on what God really desires from His people. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 says, And He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it, is, as it is written in the book, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
it's hard to make a straight road when you're in a wilderness of ravines and jagged mountains. So as they have for thousands of years, when people are going to make a road, they fill in the low spots and they clear off and make smooth the peaks. As everybody here knows, the highway just past my house spent over six months being closed so they could do repair work on it. What's strange is when they first closed that road, they, they had said they're, they're building a new bridge. I thought they were talking about the big, like, 100-yard long, maybe 150-yard long bridge that goes across the river where the river cuts through just past my house. That's not what they were replacing they were putting in a comparatively tiny concrete culvert where a little stream that's about this wide comes through. But the thing is, it took six months to do that. Now people might say, oh, well, that's the government for you. But here's the deal. After you cross the, high, or cross the, the, the bridge that the river goes under, there's a little hill, and then it drops down into a valley. And then it goes up a fairly steep hill if you're looking off to the sides. And that little valley is where that little stream comes through. And when they were replacing that culvert, they had to dig out 50 feet of earth that had been put in there, 50 feet deep, just to get down to it for this little culvert that's like maybe 6 feet across on the inside. They had to, in order to make it so that you could drive a vehicle across there, they had to put in thousands of tons of fill to level off from that high peak to the low place down where the river is. Get that smooth. You would not be able to get, I don't know, there's probably some folks in here that are big Jeep fans and they think, I could make it up that hill. Maybe you could, but you ain't getting a semi up there. They had to lower it on one side, cut it down, make it less of an incline, and fill in 50 feet that just a tiny little stream made. Because you can't cross from one place to the other while everything is all jagged, while everything has deep ravines. You just can't get through it. That is not just true of a physical road. It is true of the paths of our lives. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths will straight make straight your paths. John comes just before the Lord in several ways. The story of his impending birth comes just before the telling of Jesus soon to come to be born. John came physically, as far as we can surmise, about six months or so before Jesus. And John, in his ministry, came just a short time, as far as we can tell from Scripture, before Jesus started his ministry. We don't know exactly when or exactly where he started preaching people to turn and repent and come to the Lord. But it was what they needed to hear. They needed someone filled with the Holy Spirit to be telling them firmly, but mostly lovingly, except when he called people broods of vipers, but that's a different story. They needed to be told firmly, but lovingly, that they simply had to change and turn to God. It's what their ears needed to hear so that their brains could process it. Their brains needed to process it so that when they met Jesus, their hearts would be ready. The road would be paved, so to speak, for him to make an impact on them that was needed so they could turn and he would heal them. Here's the funny thing. It's still what's needed today. The world still needs a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit to tell them firmly but lovingly that their lives are not in order and they need to repent and change and be ready to accept Jesus. Because that is the only way for them to spend eternity with God. People need the the mountains, the jagged mountains of their lives to be smoothed out. They need the deep ravines of sin to be filled in so that the path can be made straight, so that they are ready to accept Jesus. Most people, I mean, there's, there's examples of this happening, so it doesn't, it's not that it never happens, but most people don't go from being wicked, evil, nasty person to, I'm ready to accept Jesus right now as my Lord and Savior. Let's get in the tank. Like that. doesn't usually happen that way. Usually, they need someone who knows Jesus, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, to talk to them, to prepare the way so that when they hear about the forgiveness that's available through Jesus Christ, their hearts, their hearts, their minds and their hearts are ready to make that decision, to change and accept the Lord. 
Not that they become perfect people that day. Not that they, they change all these things in their lives, but that they're ready and they're willing and they accept that forgiveness. If you haven't seen this being built up yet, there's Holy Spirit-filled people in this room. If you are a person who has accepted Christ as your Savior and been immersed into the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. And most of you either have right there with you or somewhere where you can lay your hands on it real easy, the Word of God. And there's a world out there that needs to know that Jesus isn't just a babe in a manger. He's their Savior, and they need to come to Him. The question is, will you be John to the multitude of people who don't know Jesus? Will you gently but firmly 